0: Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Today on board, political scientists with considerable foreign policy expertise. So glad to have them with us. Jim McCormick, Professor Emeritus of Political Science at Iowa State University. Hi, Jim. Hi, Ben. Sarah Mitchell with us as well, the F. Wendell Miller Professor of Political Science at the University of Iowa. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Hi. We want to have you um, join us with your questions as you listen to this program uh, for our foreign policy experts. Of course, uh, the bulk of the program about the Israel-Gaza war. We do want to talk about uh, what's happening in the U.S. House with replacing um, the Speaker of the House. Of course, there are ties between those two stories, but uh, we'll focus mainly uh, on the Israel-Gaza war and see what else uh, fits into the hour. Uh, The Israeli military, as we've been hearing, preparing to step up its offensive in the Gaza Strip. Uh, The death toll in Israel from the Hamas attack uh, has passed 1,200. bodies continuing to be recovered. Troops amassed uh, at the Gaza border um, and expected ground invasion to come in Gaza. Israeli strikes, killing over a thousand people, forcing the closure of the only exit from that blockaded uh, territory. We heard the U.S. president yesterday, Biden, calling Hamas evil. Um, He said then at least 14 Americans have been killed. We heard in our NPR news just moments ago, uh, that's up to 22 at least, among also Americans among the hostages taken by uh, Hamas. Join us uh, with your questions, one 866 780 9100 river to river at iowapublicradio.org lots of facets we can explore Uh, unfortunately we have a a limited amount of time let me open it up first of all for the two uh, of you Jim and Sarah Uh, Jim as a foreign policy expert who's been observing uh, this area the Mideast uh, for decades in the broadest terms what is the significance of the events
1: well, what I, what it what the significance is, first of all, is it brought, brings in the sharp relief. It seems to me, you know, the failure to get to settle the Israeli-Palestinian issue that has been going on for literally, literally decades here, and it shows again, once again, that the Middle East is sort of the uh, the the spark that that really could uh, engender a, a, a very much of a wider war. I can remember. If I can go back this far to my, when I was an undergraduate, one of my professors said, "You know that if a war, really uh, a global war, is going to break out again, it's going to have its initiation in the Middle East." That was very sobering to me, as a uh, as a college junior. I think, is when I when I first heard that, are we talking the the nineteen has...
0: Jim the nineteen sixties?
1: That's right. We are talking about the nineteen sixties, <laughs> uh, and uh, that has sort of been. The, the continuation of that and the failure to, to get a settlement uh, by the parties uh, obviously has been brought even into greater highlight uh, with, this, uh, with this war that, that has broken out over the past uh, weekend here. So the Middle East is uh, a continuing cauldron, I guess, is the way to describe it, uh, and it has not really been addressed. And it's frankly for the United States at the present time, given the other kind of issues Uh, internationally they're trying to deal with. It just just is simply one more really great difficulty in trying to preserve any kind of global order.
0: Mm -hmm. Sarah, your thoughts, top of mind, first of all.
2: I mean, first of all, I would say that this is the most successful attack by Hamas um, on Israel by far in terms of its deadliness and effectiveness. So there are a lot of questions right now about how the intelligence in Israel and US and beyond uh, sort of failed to, to see that this attack was coming. Um, Egypt is claiming they gave information to Netanyahu that an attack, something was coming, but that it was ignored. He's claiming that, that, that they, he did not get that information. Um, but I think uh, there, even though there is a sort of rally around the flag effect in Israel with people coming together of course, in in the way they should after these heinous attacks on civilians. Um, you're seeing also, though, that some uh, of the newspapers in Isra- Israel are criticizing Netanyahu's yes. government for being so focused on the West Bank issues and basically uh, reducing security forces uh, near the Gaza border. And so also, you know, question about how the um, you know, how how did the Palestinians essentially get through the border wall in so many points, because people have always believed that that wall was impenetrable because it's built with concrete below ground, a wall above ground. There's a ton of sensors and cameras and other surveillance. Uh, so for that, uh, for the Hamas to be able to blow up various points of that wall go in with bulldozers and allow for, you know, motorcycles and, and individuals to go through those points, uh, there's a lot of questions right now about, you know, how did that happen, uh, given people's belief in that area that this this is a secure place.
0: Join our conversation with um, political scientists Sarah Mitchell and uh, Jim McCormick, one 780 9100 or email river-to-river at iowapublicradio.org. Let's talk about our president's uh, response here. Um, Referring yesterday to the threatened executions of the hostages that have been taken, the president said a violation of every code of human morality, Um, Biden condemning uh, the militant group Hamas for sheer evil, for this uh, attack on Israel, killing hundreds of civilians, uh, including at least 22 uh, uh, Americans, as we know. Let's listen to a few seconds of his comments from yesterday.
1: We will make sure Israel has what it needs to take care of its citizens, defend itself, and respond to this attack. There's no justification for terrorism. There's no excuse. Hamas does not stand for the Palestinian people's right to dignity and self-determination. The stated purpose is the annihilation of the state of Israel and the murder of Jewish people. They use Palestinian civilians as human shields. Moss offers nothing but terror and bloodshed, with no regard to who pays the price.
0: Sarah, comment on what you find notable in the president's entire response. Well,
2: I think it's a very strong response. You know to support Israel, the moving of an aircraft carrier to the Middle East uh, is, is helpful for trying to prevent escalation, right, uh, with uh, Hezbollah attacking from Lebanon or or more broadly with Iran or any other potential regional escalation, as Jim was just saying, that, you know, that I think the U.S. can be helpful in that regard. Um, you know, of course, we have to ask ourselves, why would Hamas do something like this, mm-hmm. Um because on the, on the one hand, it seems like a suicide mission for them because Israel is cl- clearly going to retaliate in a manner that they have not in the past. They've mobilized 300,000 plus uh, soldiers uh, because all Israelis do mandatory military service. And so they can be called back into service, which is what's happening. So they're preparing essentially for a, a land uh, action, you know, ground action in, in Gaza to root out uh, Hamas, they're also uh, using bunker bombs uh, because there is extensive tunnel system. Uh, in the past, Israel has not really used those kind of uh, bombing strategies because you know they're indiscriminate, right? They take out a lot of civilians. So in some ways, the aerial bombing, uh, you know, sort of they've they've taken, you know, they're they're responding in a way that will allow for uh, you know, greater action against Hamas. Mm-hmm. But of course, Hamas is using terrorism uh, for exactly the reasons that all terrorist groups do it. They are doing it to show coercion, that they have the, ca- the, cap- the capability right to, to have an incursion on Israeli soil. They are killing civilians to demonstrate, you know, to create fear in Israel and, and to demonstrate their resolve. They are trying to provoke a response from Israel. Uh, so if if uh, terrorists often use these tactics to get the other side to disproportionately respond, which then would increase support among Palestinians uh, you know, more broadly in the Middle East, and they're also trying to spoil potential uh, moves of normalization of relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia and, and other Arab states. And so again, we see that a lot with terrorist groups where they they used uh, terrorist attacks to spoil peace processes. And then finally, I'll say that uh, terrorists also use tactics for outbidding with other ethnic groups. And so in this case, uh, Hamas can demonstrate to Palestinians their resolve uh, for the com- the conflict and their goals, and in that regard, uh, Mahmoud Abbas, president of the, the State of Palestine, uh, you know, can essentially, right? It, it's a it's a challenge to his leadership because he's essentially taking a more moderate position with things like, you know, the Abraham. Uh, accords in this, uh, like Israel and Saudi Arabia trying to establish diplomatic relations.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Jim, we have about a couple minutes before the the break to you on one specific part of President Biden's response here. He he talked about um, calling multiple times Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, His speech yesterday was delayed because of that call. Uh, He said in his remarks, we discussed how democracies like Israel and the U.S. are stronger and more secure when we act according to the rule of law. Terrorists purposefully target civilians, kill them. We uphold the laws of war, the law of war. It matters. There's a difference. What do you see in those words? Um, um, A message to Israel in its response?
1: It is, and clearly a message to Netanyahu, you know, not to engage in, you know, the the massive killing of civilians as they respond. And I, uh, you know, and, and, uh, you know whether Netanyahu gets the message or not. I think it's really important for Israel to take take that message very, very seriously because you know in the past, if I think about back to, you know, there was this kind of uh, Sabra and Shatila massacre that happened in Beirut, Lebanon. Not that the Israelis were directly responsible, but they they surrounded the uh, PLO there, and then the the Phalangists went uh, engaged in massive killings. Uh, And that resulted in uh, the Israelis getting extraordinary uh, degrees of uh, of bad publicity and and condemnation for it. And I think the other thing that not only was Biden's message to Netanyahu, but uh, the secretary general also issued a a message here that humanitarian law must be upheld in any kind of retaliation uh, that the Israelis engage in.
0: Back with more analysis from political scientists Jim McCormick and Sarah Mitchell. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River. From IPR News, Ben Kiefer, back in just a moment. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. We're back with more of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer. Today with Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa, Jim McCormick of Iowa State University. So glad to have these two with us with their considerable foreign policy uh, expertise, uh, considering what's been happening over the last few days uh, since the attack uh, on Israel by Hamas and uh, uh, Israel's retaliation in Gaza continuing now into a fourth day. Over 2,000 people uh, killed. We do have um, um, others uh, taken hostages. Americans among those hostages. At least 22 Americans killed. Join us with your questions uh, for uh, Jim and Sarah. One eight six six seven eighty ninety one hundred or email us river to river at iowapublicradio.org. I wanted to get into a little bit uh, of our uh, response from our. Um, congressional delegation here in Iowa. All six uh, of our congressional delegation, uh, four in the House, uh, two in the Senate, uh, uh, Republicans uh, condemning the terrorist attack in Israel, vowing to support renewed funding for uh, Israel's defense. Uh, Let's take a listen uh, to, um, first of all, uh, U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley. Yesterday, he doubts the U.S. will dispatch soldiers directly into Israel
1: not want American troops on the ground. Israel has the capability of handling this situation, but I think if Israel would cry out to us that they need some help, they would get that help. I think it would be probably help other than troops on the ground,
0: Okay. Yesterday, U.S. Senator Joni Ernst, our other senator, met with the Israeli government officials in Israel. Ernst is part of a GOP leadership uh, in the uh, U.S. Senate. She told Radio Iowa that House Republicans must quickly select a new speaker so Congress can act.
2: I have been overseas for many days now, and as I watch the different news
1: channels in in whatever country I happen to be in, they all talk about what they see as chaos in the House of Representatives right now. And they look to the United States for leadership, and when that leadership is
2: not present, they wonder about the security not only of our own nation, the United States, but uh, the security and stability in other regions.
0: Senator Ernst uh, taped in a phone conversation while she's in Jordan. Um, Sarah Mitchell, uh, talk about our congressional delegation, specifically what we've heard there from our two U.S. senators.
2: Yeah, I think it's it's not surprising that all of Iowa's uh, congressional delegation and our governor are, are coming out strongly in favor of Israel and and protecting Israel's right to defend itself. Uh, Political scientists have often described, you know, historically the the close ties between the United States and Israel and and what's sometimes called the Israeli lobby. But essentially, you know, there there are a lot of uh, you know efforts to to foster those ties. Um, but but over time, um, as you know, when uh, Hamas took control of the Gaza Strip, Israel uh, implemented um, you know strict uh some blockade rules against them in terms of uh gaza not being allowed to use their sea access all goods going into gaza having to go through uh you know israeli checkpoints four of them um putting restrictions on the kinds of of goods that could go in you know anything that could be used to to build weapons for example restrictions on those kind of materials and so, as those policies unfolded from the mid 2000s forward, there have been uh, you know, more Americans being more sympathetic to the to the Palestinian cause and seeing some of some of those Israeli policies as being unjust. And so I think uh, yeah, you, you may have seen, uh, like 34 student groups at Harvard put out a statement, mm-hmm. um, you know, supporting Palestinians. Um, and and that was pretty controversial, right? And, and that's happening at other, uh, you're seeing that across other uh, institutions in the United States. And so I, I think, um, you know, while uh, the U.S. has been very strong pro-is- pro-Israeli in the past, I think, uh, you know, more and more people there it's become more nuanced I guess I'll say in the United States as uh, people see you know Israel's long-run policy uh, towards the Palestinian territories is having some issues
0: mm-hmm. uh, Jim I'd like to have you comment what um, Senator uh, on what Senator Ernst uh, brought up. Um, we have the U.S. House there without a speaker within the last few minutes. I'm reading an update from uh, of just a few minutes ago via the New York Times. Republicans narrowly nominating Representative Steve Scalise of Louisiana as their choice to lead the House. Um, this comes, of course, after last week's ouster of Speaker Kevin McCarthy. 113 to 19, 99 uh, was the vote during a closed Uh, door party meeting this morning. Um, Scalise turning back that challenge by Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio. And uh, so now this, uh, I guess, this goes to the House floor. Um, With that in mind, uh, Jim, comment on this happening at the same time we are um, without a speaker in the U.S. House.
1: Well, no action can be taken as long as they're not a speaker. I mean, the Speaker Pro Tem all he can do is, you know, uh, open up the house and then uh, and and move towards adjournment here. So to take any kind of legislative action, even passing a resolution in support uh, of of Israel, which apparently has already been circulated here, uh, would require a, st- a speaker in place. My hope is that, in fact, if Scalise is the nominee of the Republicans, that they're all is uh, sort of in lockstep and that we won't have sort of. Uh, ballot after ballot on, on the House floor uh, to to uh, approve a speaker here. I think it's incumbent on the Republicans, uh, a, and really response to what Senator Ernst said, uh, to have a, a speaker in place and to not uh, to portray to the rest of the world that that chaos is not uh, overtaking the uh, the House of Representatives here. So. Hopefully it'll be done by this afternoon, although, you know, most of the estimates that I saw going into this, so I'm kind of surprised that there, you know, is, it, is this much unity at this juncture, was that they w- would take several days to do it. But, but maybe we'll have a speaker by, by tonight. I know on an interview that Scalise had today, he said... He thought they'd have a speaker by this evening. We'll see.
0: Yeah, I think what I'm seeing in the reports, a House vote by 3 p.m., 2 p.m. Iowa time, One eight six six seven eighty ninety one hundred. 9100 Email us, river-to-river at iowapublicradio.org. Political scientists, Jim McCormick of ISU, Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa. Let's go to our phones. Mauro is with us. Mauro, welcome to our program. Hey, thank you, and Thank you uh, for Jim and, and the guests there. I just think that there's no way to argue with the fact that Hamas's attacks on innocent civilians has to be condemned as a war crime, plain and simple. But what most of the media and world re- leaders have for decades ignores the repeated war crimes Israel has inflicted on the Palestinians. All the land stealing, the invasions, the occupation, the repeated violence and destruction uh, needs to be taken into account for a balanced view of the decades-long conflict. Okay. Mauro, uh, thank you for your call from Iowa City. Uh, Cindy is with us from Des Moines. Hi, Cindy.
1: Oh, hi. Um, What I wanted to say
2: was um, Hamas has said that Israel should be demolished, but The right part of uh, Israel's government said that the Palestinians should be demolished. So uh, I'm worried that they might use this to wipe uh, the Palestinians, try to wipe them off the face of the earth.
0: Yeah. Uh, Cindy, thank you for your comment. But not only uh, that, but also we have um, GOP presidential candidates, uh, at least one. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, um, during a recent visit here in Iowa, said the militant group Hamas should be wiped off the face of, of the earth. Um, uh, Sarah, uh, t- t- talk about the what we see, the range of reaction here um in these i guess we can we can talk about the gop candidates for president but uh, the range of reaction we see here
2: well like i said it's it's there's not a whole lot of range uh, it, it's very pro-israeli as, as i would expect given historical ties um i think you know the the issue here it, this is something like people will always ask why isn't there a solution to this conflict and I think as Americans, we often uh, think that we can identify solutions. Uh, but you know, I spent two weeks in Israel on a program that's designed to uh, educate academics about the the conflict and the peace process. And in that two weeks, we met with you know uh, politicians from both sides, negotiators for the peace process. Uh, we we talked with judges. We talked with members of the press. You know, people from different uh, organizations and groups we met. I went to one of those uh, Gaza checkpoint uh, uh, sites and and saw the goods going into Gaza, met with people living near the Gaza wall. And I think, you know, it really struck me when I left after the most intense uh, education I'd ever had on the conflict was that I left feeling there is no resolution. Uh, it, was, it was actually very depressing, and I, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, the, the issues are, are so complex in terms of, okay, two-state solution, but you can see here that if, if one side feels that the other side doesn't recognize it as a legitimate state or actor, then it's, it's going to be hard to have two entities living next to each other territorially uh, that, that don't recognize each other. Their, their right to exist. A one state solution ha, has been proposed at various points in time that would dramatically change the, the ethnic makeup of Israel. Um, so you, you can imagine people on the right in Israel are, are opposed to that. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I just think there's so many complex issues and I think we have to sort of step back and realize that, you know, this is an area that has been contested for centuries. These groups uh, have competed in the area you know, near the Alaska uh, Mosque Complex and the Western Wall. These are sacred sites for both religions. They have historical importance for both sides. Um, and, and so it's, and territorially, they're extremely close. They're about the distance from, you know, downtown Iowa City to the stadium. Uh, and so when I was there, you know, like all of those religious sites are so close to each other. Right. And it really, uh, really showed me, you know, the, the how the positioning of what's in Jerusalem and how important it is to all of these major religions, uh, you know, makes these Negotiations so intractable,
0: right? We have to realize the geography of the, the the Gaza Strip, a, a 25-mile stretch of land that is um, sort of pressed against the uh, Mediterranean Sea between Israel and Egypt. And um, looking at some numbers this morning, my figuring said said you know in square miles, it's a bit larger than Des Moines in terms of square miles. There, uh, some over two million people live in the Gaza uh, Strip, all ruled by Hamas. Let's let's listen to the presidential hopeful and former U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, Uh, she said on the uh, Meet the Press Sunday that the deadly Hamas incursion into Israel should serve as a warning sign uh, for the U.S. comparing America's, uh, our country's southern border with Mexico uh, to Israel's border with Gaza.
2: I have been terribly worried about the fact that Iran has said the easiest way to get into America is through the southern border. We have an open border. People are coming through. They're not being vetted. We don't need to wait for another 9-11. You also look at the fact that, Kristen, America is incredibly distracted and incredibly divided. And when America's distracted, the world is less safe. And look at what happened to Israel. They waited for them to be distracted. And that's when your enemies move in. Mm-hmm. America needs to wake up. We need to put this negativity and division behind us, and we need to focus on national security for ourselves and for our friends.
0: Okay, uh, several of the GOP candidates uh, making that linkage between our southern border and what's happening in the last few days, Jim. What do you think of that? Is that uh, uh, a valid comparison?
1: Well, not really. I mean, uh, you know, the the issue in in the, the Middle East with with Hamas and and Israel. You know, here here we have this kind of occupation that that is occurring with regard to Gaza here uh, by the Israelis, and you know, the the frustration of the of the Palestinians uh, have, has led to this outcome. So I don't think it's, it's really, a, a, you know, a, a fair comparison here. I think there is an issue with, you know, the, the uh, migration that has taken place at the southern border, uh, the fact that uh, there has not been uh, sufficient uh, addressing of this by the, by the Biden administration over the past two years. And, you know, the, the Biden administration now has made a, a sort of a, a little bit of a pivot here in terms of, uh, you know, that they're going to rebuild a little bit of the wall. But I think the the whole security issue on the, on the southern border is is certainly an issue that has to be addressed. But, you know, I, I don't think the, the comparison category is uh, is really there and, and the sort of the motivation uh, versus Hamas and, and, and Israel versus, uh, you know, the migration that takes place on the uh, on the southern border of the United States, here.
0: Mm-hmm. Sarah, um, what do you think about the linkage that uh, GOP candidates have been making here?
2: Well, first of all, on the southern border, you know, a lot of people are coming in seeking political asylum in the United States because they're fleeing, you know, horrible situations, you know, armed groups. Killing them or threatening them uh, in in countries that they're fleeing from, and so they're they're coming here seeking asylum, and the Biden administration gets criticized a lot on the left because it you know we're sending a lot of these asylum seekers back to their countries, right? Um, I was I was just talking to my mom about this, like because you know I think she had the view like a lot of people do that we're just letting all these people in the country, but in reality, we are you know. Flying the vast majority of them back to the countries they're seeking asylum from, and so so first of all, yes, it looks like a lot of people are coming in, but we're not actually allowing that many of them in the country um, permanently, right? We're we're sending a lot of them back, and then on this broader issue of, I mean, I do agree that uh, you know Netanyahu, his policies. Um, both in terms of trying to restrict uh, judicial independence, which led to, uh, you know, these massive protests in, in Tel Aviv and elsewhere. Uh, so there was a lot of domestic opposition to what he was doing there. Uh, we, he has allowed uh, settlers to expand into uh, additional areas under his leadership. And and that's created more tensions in the West Bank. and And I think because of those, you know, because of those tensions elsewhere in the country maybe there was less attention to that particular border with Gaza and so I think there's there's going to be a reckoning for for his government in terms of how, why did they not respond you know how, why did they not know this was coming and then why did it take them three days to secure those those holes in that wall mm-hmm.
0: Sarah Mitchell with us and Jim McCormick Sarah of the ISU and Jim of the University, rather, Sarah of the UI and Jim of uh, ISU. Sorry about the mix up. We're dealing with a lot of big political stories today. And we have our final segment coming up after a short break. Uh, We'd love to have you join our conversation. 1-866-780-9100. Let's talk more about the speaker nomination. Uh, Republicans narrowly nominating Representative Steve Scalise of Louisiana just a bit ago. We'll talk about it when we come back. Can we heal the environment? In Kansas, we're working on it. Up From Dust is a podcast about how humans reshaped the world to fit urban landscapes and agricultural needs. We'll meet the people who are rolling up their sleeves to find more sustainable ways forward. Listen to Up From Dust from KCUR, part of the NPR Network. We are back midstream in this edition of River to River. From IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer with Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa, Jim McCormick of Iowa State University, our two political scientists, uh, both with foreign policy expertise, weighing in on the big story, of course, from the weekend uh, in Israel, um, the war between now Israel and Hamas, and uh, the threat of it uh, growing into a a wider uh, a conflict in the Middle East. Uh, let's speak to that before we go to the U.S. House Speaker uh, battle. Uh, Jim, comment on that, because uh, we, we, we could have uh, what what is your greatest fear when you think of uh, the coming days and weeks, and what might become of what started on the weekend?
1: Yeah, we haven't really mentioned you know Iran very much in, in terms of their involvement, and that has become a question here. And so I think part of the f- uh, fear, at least as I listened to President Biden yesterday here, you know, he didn't mention Iran in his comments, and I think part of it is that. You know he's trying to sort of insulate the war just to uh, to this uh, conflict between Israel and Gaza and not you know so ex- exacerbate uh, the situation by bringing uh, Iran uh, into the uh, into the likelihood that they would have to respond or that the United States would have to respond if we if we uh, targeted uh, Iran as being uh, the source of uh, of this conflict because there's all kinds of speculation as. You, as you probably know, in terms of the Wall Street Journal saying that there was a meeting uh, of Hamas and uh, uh, some leaders from, or at least from Scud's people from uh, from Iran uh, in in Beirut at the initiation of before the initiation of this this conflict, uh, so I think part of that is to try to try to insulate it to and, and keep it uh, keep it um, isolated, if you will, to this. Just to these uh, these participants here, uh, and I think the other thing is, of course, is that the administration has to deal with, you know, with uh, Ukraine. Yet it's still dealing with, you know, with the issues of of Taiwan, uh, you know, and there has been other uh, issues with regard to Armenia and Azerbaijan and so on. So I think trying to isolate this uh, incident is is really what what the, uh, the administration is trying to do. Um, the other thing that I think we ought to mention, and, and Sarah brought it up or alluded to it earlier, was the intelligence issue here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm not really convinced, I must say, that uh, you know that there, that the United States intelligence agency has had difficulty unraveling you know the involvement of uh, of the various parties here. Uh, if it is, it, it's really uh, a, a, an intelligence failure that goes back to 9/11 here. Um, so I'm not really really convinced that, that that is likely the case here. But I think it's rather the effort on the part of the administration to try to keep the conflict uh, a bit isolated.
0: Mm-hmm. Sarah, your thoughts on, on the possibility, the threat of a wider war, allies like uh, Iran, as Jim mentioned. We also have, have Hezbollah in Lebanon. Um, might they you know, join the battle if, if Gaza is subjected to a war of annihilation?
2: Yeah, so first of all, on the issue of Iran, uh, the the U.S. Uh, administration came out and said that they had no d- direct intelligence, right, linking that, that Iran was directly involved in the planning. And then uh, the German government just came out yesterday, I think, saying the same thing, that they had no intelligence, showing that Iran was directly behind this. And so, so first of all, I would say we need to sort of step back from believing that, that Iran was pulling the direct trigger in this particular Hamas attack until we have more information about that. In terms of the broader escalation, this is definitely a risk, right? We just talked about how Israel's uh, you know, conflicts and, and divisions in different parts of the country created an opportunity for an attack. And you could imagine the same thing, right? If you're a Hezbollah group in in the north, in Lebanon, then this creates an opportunity for attacks. And in fact, Hezbollah has attacked. They they had an incursion in Sheba Farms, which is a a long run territorial dispute between Lebanon and Israel. Uh, They they had a couple other engagements. And so I think uh, the U. I mentioned the U.S. response with the the aircraft carrier uh, off the coast of Israel. You know that that's important, right, for trying to demonstrate that the U.S. will respond to any attempt to to escalate this into a broader situation. So I I think that's going to help um, prevent this kind of escalation. But of course. You could imagine even in the West Bank, uh, some groups there are taking advantage of Israel moving its forces to Gaza. So so I think there's a potential for escalation in these areas, and, and I hope that uh, U.S. military support will damp down the, the potential for regional escalation.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, earlier today, um, by a vote of one thirteen to ninety nine, this was during a closed door party meeting. Um, Representative Scalise turned back a challenge by Representative Jim Jordan. This is uh, the, these are the two vying for um, to re- replace um, uh, Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the U.S. House. Um, uh, his candidacy now goes to the House floor. Well, let's move to that topic a bit, uh, and, and Sarah, start us off there. Um, when we, if, if Scalise is the one, uh, we'll see if he gets broad support when that vote goes to the House floor. Um, how is a Scalise or possibly a Jordan um, speakership? That can't be ruled out, I guess, entirely at this point. We're expecting a, a House vote uh, later this afternoon. How will that be different than the the House under McCarthy in any case?
2: Well, I mean, neither one of them is that much of a centrist in terms of policy position. Uh, Scalise did not vote to certify the election results, for example. Um, now, he has served in leadership, right? He was the GOP whip from 2014 to 2022 and was McCarthy's, you know, second in command, basically. Um, so you know, and he is actually, I will say, uh, more in favor of sending aid to Ukraine. So that makes him more centrist. Um, but but yeah, I think, uh, you know, where where he's going to land, I guess, in the, the spectrum of, of the Republican Party is a question. And the fact that Trump was supporting Jordan instead, I mean, that's, we'll see how this plays out, right, in terms of the the votes uh, in favor of Scalise, but but I think I I guess. I don't. I don't envision it. Maybe would be that different from what McCarthy was doing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now we have the yeah, and now we have this um, larger war in the Middle East, uh, Jim. Um, um, the last what eighteen months we've been focused on uh, Europe, um, Ukraine, um, the World war uh, since the invasion by Russia. There, um, the thoughts on how the Republican Party um, may be shaped in the House specifically because they've been divided over continued support by Ukraine with the entry of this new great geopolitical challenge in the Middle East.
1: Well, I think they'll immediately turn to, to aid, for, uh, aid for Israel here. And I, I think that actually Scalise will, will strike a bargain uh, to, get, uh, to get some aid for Ukraine here. Uh, I mean, Scalise has come out and said he's a conservative, and he will you know, be willing to, to stand up to the, you know, the president and, and so on. But I also, I think the big difference that I would detect with Scalise is that he has trust of members. One of the things that, uh, you know, that uh, really, um, I suppose, torpedoed McCarthy in terms of his speakership was that he, he apparently made some side deals and didn't adhere to them, and so he lost this kind of uh, trust. Scalise, on the other hand, you know, given his experience as an administrator within uh, the House, uh, having been whip, having been majority leader, uh, he, he clearly has some contacts, uh, you know, across the whole spectrum uh, of, the, of the party here, uh, perhaps more than and more confidence than, than McCarthy engendered and certainly more than probably uh, Jordan uh, uh, engenders here. So I think that he, he will be able to get aid uh, for Israel, but also he'll strike a bargain. Probably not the, you know, the $24 billion that uh, the Biden administration is looking for, uh, but some package uh, somewhat less than that. I think it's notable today, you know, and as you may have seen this, you know, the NATO uh, folks are meeting today, the defense ministers and so on, uh, you know, t- to talk further. And there and, um, you know, the Ukrainian president, showed up in a surprise visit there uh, to, to sort, sort of bolster that. So um, certainly Zelensky does not want to keep the Ukraine issue outside of the, the purview of, of these defense ministers, even as the, the issue of uh, the Gaza war, uh, Israel-Gaza war, sort of takes the, the main, uh, main spotlight here.
0: Mm-hmm. Sarah, how do you see this changing, if at all, uh, the U.S. attitude and support toward Ukraine?
1: Well, I
2: think, you know, that we're, of course, going to have to get back to this getting a budget passed issue. Uh, so we're going to need a speaker for that. Yes. Um, and and so I think the Ukraine funding in that budget will still be contentious on the GOP side. So, so we'll see how that plays out. I guess the good news is if you look at what's happened to other nato members since the russian invasion there's been not surprisingly a, a massive increase in defense spending by european member states and and so nato members are supposed to spend 2% of their gross domestic product on defense and a lot of members historically have been below that threshold mm-hmm. And if you look at the most recent data uh, since the the Russian invasion, there's been a lot more countries meeting that threshold or getting very close to meeting that threshold. Um, and uh, some of the larger states uh, are ramping up their production of military, uh, you know, weapons and other military equipment. So, so I think even if the U.S. Uh, were not fully stepping in to provide that aid, it looks like our European allies are going to, to, to play that part to some extent.
0: Yeah. Uh, Jim, let me ask you, uh, you know, Ukraine and Russia uh, used, becoming, uh, have become used to being the center of our, our global media attention for the 19 months of the war. That shifted over the weekend with the attack on Israel. Um, I wonder if you can give us some insights on uh, Russia's view of this crisis. I think their response has been muted, though they have, I think, relations with Israel, good relations with Israel. What, what are your thoughts there?
1: Yeah, um, Russia has actually over the the recent past tried to stabilize its relations uh, with with Israel here. Uh, but I think you know it, Russia. I mean, put it this way: Russia really probably would like this war to continue a bit here because again, it takes the focus off of uh, off of Ukraine. Uh, it it sort of divides American attention here, as as well as it divides European attention. Because actually some European states have pulled back from their, their support from Ukraine. I mean, there's a dispute with Poland here uh, and they've pulled back. And now Slovakia has elected a new government uh, that, you know, as, is pro-Russian here. So there's, there is, are some fissures uh, that are developing and, and certainly Russia would like to, would like to um, utilize those in terms of its, of its own plans here. And actually, you know, the Ukrainian efforts here, um, you know, in terms of their uh, attack their counterattack here, have not been really going very well here. I mean, it's been very, very modest kind of uh, uh, kind of gains that they've made. So I think Russia sees this war uh, and the continuation of it as something to to really their advantage here, mm-hmm. uh, even though they will probably let others speak. You know, you know more more out more outspoken, be more outspoken about it uh, than, uh, than they would be in terms of this, uh, this conflict.
0: Yeah. Uh, Jim, with all your, your, your decades of foreign policy study and research here, uh, I mean, how does this time compare? We have an administration, the Biden administration, um, needing the political capital and consensus to address these really urgent um, foreign policy concerns. Uh, uh, this is a remarkable time we're living in.
1: It really is. You know, um, I like to hearken back to the uh, the late uh, Bill Richardson, who said after President Biden was elected, he said that President Biden will be a foreign policy president because that's where his really his ilk is. That's what he really loves. And I think the answer is that, yes, it this has been a foreign policy uh, challenge for the administration here. Uh, and, you know, having so many different conflicts going on, if you kind of t- circle around the globe here. I mean, obviously, there's the issue with, with China and Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the Ukraine-Russia uh, issue, now the Middle East, and even certainly unrest within within the Sahel and Africa with coups and uh, and jihadist uh, activities there. I, it has really been a very, very challenging time. And, you know, the, the Biden administration has you know, set out at the beginning to re, sort of restore the liberal international order, and I'm afraid that you know the challenges uh, have really been have really been uh, quite stark for them uh, on virtually every continent at this time. So uh, it's been uh, a, a, a little bit of disorder in the international system, and that that is trying to be uh, trying to be uh, resolved at at this juncture. And the Biden administration really has. Um, and with his Secretary of State and his National Security Advisor, really have a great challenge, it seems to me. Yeah.
0: Um, less than a minute, um, your final thoughts, Sarah Mitchell, as we end this program.
2: Well, I think there are a lot of challenges, but it's also an opportunity for President Biden because, I mean, he's done a lot of really good things on foreign policy. I think he's very clearly pivoted to Asia in a way that uh, much more so than, than the way Obama administration talked about it, but didn't actually implement. So Biden's administration has you know, implemented a bunch of new uh, you know, agreements and a and lot of meetings with different countries in Southeast Asia, for example. Um, so I think that's been a, a strong foreign policy. I think you know, unwavering support for Ukraine has, has increased solidarity and expanded NATO, Uh, and and like I just said, led to better defensive preparation among the allies. Um, Biden's popularity in other countries around the world is extremely high. So he's very well liked um, as a foreign policy leader for the United States. Um, So not to say there aren't issues that could be improved, but I think if I was scoring him on as a foreign policy president, I would give him a good grade.
0: Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Scoring well in our analysis, Sarah Mitchell of the University of Iowa, Jim McCormick of Iowa State University. Jim and Sarah, thank you so much for your insights. And thanks to our callers uh, and our emailers uh, for their questions. We appreciate it. Today's River to River produced by Caitlin Trautman. Um We had help from Samantha McIntosh, also technical help from Sheila Brummer and Grant Winterer. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.